Hello and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing Unconquerable Sun by Kate Elliott, The Chosen and the Beautiful by Neve Rowe, and Beowulf, translated by Maria Devana Headley. Hello and welcome to episode 91, Anything You Can Do, We Can Do Better. I'm Alex and I'm if I were going to appropriate a literary man, I would appropriate appropriate Chaucer. I'm Freya, and I would appropriate the character of Robin Hood. I'm Macy, and I would appropriate Mozart. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And today we are showing off how much of a better job we can do at literature than cis men can <laughs> uh, by <laughs> taking over their work and putting our grubby little queer hands all over it sticky uh, little lady hands <laughs> little lady hands and little non-binary hands yes. and all sorts of things yes retellings of classics written by women uh is what we're talking about today but before we get into all of that what are we reading lately fellow serpents i was absolutely enthralled for about let me think half a day i'm trying to think how long it took me to read it because i read it very fast in probably two sittings but the third book in the will darling adventures by kj charles has come out ah. this one is called subtle blood and it finishes up the romance arc of will and kim but it has its own amazing intrigue adventure mystery with lots of danger on boats and stabbings and people dying and it's just wonderful i was so happy with how that series wrapped up yes macy do you have a question I have a question, Freya. Are there vampires? No. In Subtle Blood. In Subtle Blood. But why, No. But okay, it's called Subtle Blood because the titles from all of titles of all the books in this series are taken from Timon of Athens. Because it is also set around a secondhand bookshop and there's some stuff to do with the copy of Timon of Athens in the first book. And also there are a lot of pit stabbings and people dying, so it's very Timon of Athens appropriate. I just feel like KJ Charles would make good vampire. I think so. Yes, let us let us live out in hope that one day KJ from Charles... our ears, from our ears to your, from our mouth to your ears, KJ Charles. Uh, apart from that, also unfortunately not including vampires, um, I read *For the Wolf* by Hannah Witten, which is the first book in the new fantasy duology. This one is a sort of mashup of. Little Red Riding Hood and Beauty and the Beast mm. in the setup. It's about the second daughter of a royal family, and the arrangement has been that the first daughter is for the throne, because it's a matrilineal monarchy, and the second daughter is for the wolf, which means she gets sent uh, on her 18th birthday or around there to the Wilderwood. Oh, what's it called? Sorry, let me remember what it's called. Wildwood or the Wilderwood. Yeah, she gets sent to the Wilderwood, which is a very creepy magical forest, which is also acting as a kind of boundary slash prison for some old kings who are imprisoned. Mm -hmm. And the idea is mm -hmm. that if the sacrifice of this young princess is sent to the wolf, then he will one day release the kings who can mm -hmm. again protect the kingdom. So there's a lot of very myth mythic setup there. And it is a fantasy romance. It's also I'd say about 70% fucky forest bullshit by weight, 
Macy, okay. I think you would really I like this. I see what you're saying, there are Freya. Many, I see many, what you're many saying. Scenes where somebody has to call on the magic of the forest, and their eyes go green veined, and they start growing <laughs> horns and thorns and things. At every okay, page, I was love, like, we "Love people growing thorns." Macy would really enjoy skin. this. So. Oh. There was an art post on Tumblr where some jewelry company had like implanted little gold thorns all over oh, someone's yes, hands I saw that. to advertise also, a ring. Also peak Macy, yes. So that was really fun and I'm looking forward to the second book which focuses on the main character's sister, the one who was for the throne. <laughs> uh, and other than that, I haven't read any other full books, but I did want to talk about the Pixar movie Luca, which is being talked about on Tumblr as the gay fish movie. What? <laughs> yes. So... This is the new release from Pixar, and look, it's a fairly formulaic story if you've seen a Pixar film, but it is a take on The Little Mermaid, sort of, starring a young Italian sea monster called Luca, who dreams about the human world and wants to go and, like, play with human things and see how the people live, and discovers one day that if sea monsters leave the water, they turn into humans. And so he can move undetected amongst the people unless he gets wet. Because if he gets wet, he turns back into a visible sea monster. Uh, And he befriends another young boy called Alberto, who turns out to be a sea monster who's basically had a shit life and is now living among the people pretty much full time. And there's a whole lot of stuff to do with a race and they want to win a Vesper and they make friends with some of the town people. Uh, But the reason it's being called (laughs) the gay fish movie is because, I mean, you can read it many different ways, and I think the director has talked about how it was inspired by some really profound friendships of his childhood. But there's also a very clear reading of it as a queer coming-of-age narrative. Hmm. This idea of the person that you truly are is hidden, uh, and if you expose your real self, you will be endangered because the townspeople Hmm. want to kill all the sea monsters. And the relationship between Luca and Alberto is like a really immediate, close and intimate one. And sort of the emotional dynamic between them is the core of the movie. I watched it with my family. It's really funny. It's very heartwarming and visually very pretty. So I recommend that. Nice. You're actually making me think of, uh, as well as the novel I'm going to talk about in a sec, a short story that I read this week, uh, which is Choosing by Susan Tatel in Baffling Magazine, um, which is an ace retelling of the little mermaid from the point of view of the betrothed fiance of the prince um and it's very short baffling is a flash magazine so recommend that one and it brought up um some conversation about hans christine anderson's um personal letters and the uh, interpretation that perhaps and i'll use they right now because pronouns are complicated that that they might have been a closeted trans woman and that that's part of what's playing into the little mermaid itself uh, that when they wrote that interesting there are letters of, of hans christine anderson referring to themselves and saying you know my feminineness that you know i feel is mm. my true self so mm. i pronouns are hard um yes being as yes. respectful of them as i can in the circumstances yes. but i also read a book this week, which was not assigned to us for our three book tentpole episode. We have so many books this time, the listeners. Um, but I read The Imaginary Corpse by Tyler Hayes, which was out from Angry Robot last year. And it is a very soft, thoughtful book about an imaginary friend, um, a stuffed Triceratops detective trying to solve a serial killer case in the land of the imaginary friends who've been discarded. 
that's a lot of words in an order. Yeah. That sounds very intriguing. And it's definitely a book that kind of, that is advocating for speaking to one another and seeking to understand. Uh, That's very sort of like uh, thoughtful. This is definitely a book that has gone to therapy. Um, Mm. And so Mm. it's quite calming in a certain way to read that and to know that the main character is going to approach things in a particular way. And so Mm. I really enjoyed that. And other than that, it hit 108 degrees Fahrenheit in Seattle last week, this week, Monday. That's many. It's That's just so many degrees. 42 degrees centigrade. Um, and many. that, yeah, so Macy has mostly been Melting. fleeing the heat and being a melted puddle of useless British goo, which is frequently how I am, but like even more so than usual. Um, sure, so. sure. I feel I feel yeah. that, that the phrase Macy has mostly been melting is beautifully alliterative. Uh, but Amanda Hackwith, AJ Hackwith, helped me figure out more stuff about my threesome book because it is now traditional for all serpents to have a threesome book. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And yeah, so now I have a plot. That's probably a question mark. Do you? No. Do you mm. though? I mean, no. we are very proud if true. If I, true. Huge I if true. I Huge if I true. Don't. I just have yeah. three points of view and some world It's like, like a plot. Macy's like, I have a plot. And we're like, did you see Bigfoot as well? It's like, <laughs> it's like a cryptid situation. No, it's like, it's like Janet with a cactus behind the back. I have a plot this time. Do you, <laughs> I do. Are you sure? I definitely do have a I plot. And then what's in the little thing is like a, I have an album a character album and two for characters. three separate characters. That's what I have. And I have three paragraphs of a first scene. That is sure. That's than a plot. That's well, definitely about seventy percent cunnilingus by weight. But hey, who's counting? Alex, well, tell we us what you've you. been reading. <laughs> uh, I have mostly been reading the books for this episode mm. because we have so many books that's for this episode, dear listeners. Uh, but I also crammed in a couple more books by Victoria Goddard, uh, who wrote *The Hands of the Emperor* uh, and uh, *The Return of Fitzroy Angersell*, which I have been uh, gushing about nonstop, as you know if you have been watching me at all on any social media platform. <laughs> Uh, or listening to this podcast. Uh, Stargazy Pie and uh, Beasting Cake are the first two books of her Green Wing and Dart series. All of the books that she's writing are all interconnected in the way that um, sometimes romance authors mm. will write books mm-hmm. that are interconnected that share like same characters. Cool. Um, and so like she has a, bu- a bunch of different series, but they're all set in the same world. And they all have these same frame of references. So like you see... Like, everybody talks about Fitzroy Ingersoll, for example. He's a garbage bard. And <laughs> and so, and so in one of the books, he's the main character. Uh, and so, like, you see these names getting mentioned over and over again, and you, like, see all these crossovers and intersections between the books. And it's really wonderful because it's like, the metaphor I keep using is that it's like going to a party where you don't expect to see anyone that you know, mm-hmm. and then spotting a friend across the crowd. And just like that that moment of delight and just like, oh, hey, it's you. I, I know you. Um, Stargazy Pie and Beast and Cake, the entire Green Wing and Dart series actually, are very flavor. They're more book shaped for one thing. I know like Hands of the Emperor was not a very book shaped book, uh, but they are much more book shaped. They have like normal book plots. Um, they're very flavored like... Um, Connie Willis is to say nothing of the dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are about uh, a couple young men who have just returned from fantasy university uh, to this very like uh, 19th century, very like English 
country town uh and there's like some small murder or not murders but more mysteries like small mysteries for them to solve and like they go around like being very fashionable (laughs) young university men uh Mm -hmm. in exactly that way of uh to say nothing of the dog and they're very good of course. Are they food-based? Because they sound very food-based by the titles. So Stargazy Pie, uh, I, I've only just started Beast and Cake, but I think a Stargazy Pie did have a um, plot-relevant fish pie it's called no a Stargazy Pie. pie. <laughs> yes. Yes, there was a plot-relevant pie in that one. I expect that there's going to be a plot-relevant beasting cake because um, beasting cake apparently like turns into this sort of like Great British Bake Off retelling partway through it. <laughs> um, <Okay>. Yeah, <clears throat> I haven't gotten to that bit yet, but I will keep you posted. Excellent. Uh, so, yes. So we are going to move on and have an episode yes. now. What yes. are we talking yes. about first? Uh, so first we are going to be talking about Maria Devana Hadley's translation of Beowulf. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to tell you a little bit about it. Um, Alex? Yes, Macy? Speak English. I am Please. speaking English. <laughs> I don't know what English you're speaking, some sort of bastardized version of English. I'm speaking like proper English. Oh my gosh. Yes, but our dear listeners don't speak that English either. So if you would care to rejoin us in the 21st century. Of course. I apologize specifically to not the listeners. The listeners can deal with it. They were probably amused. Oh. But I do. I Brutal. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. I do want to take this moment to apologize to the scribes. <laughs> oh, God. Alex, you really are going to have to just the send poor them scribes. the <laughs> Rest in peace, scribes. Uh, scribes, if you, you just want to. If you just want to Google Beowulf Old English, you can take, like, the first sentence or so of that and just, like, copy and paste it directly into the document. Um, so Maria Devana Hadley, getting back on track now, uh, Maria Devana Hadley uh, translated Beowulf, uh, and she is doing a really interesting thing where she's using, she's, like, mixing in some more, like, very modern language. Um uh, bro like bro. it starts with bro instead bro. of what um and and there's a really fascinating essay she writes in the beginning of the book about mm-hmm. like how beowulf is like a very masculine story it's like it's like a story of that that dudes would tell like bragging in a bar right mm-hmm. um and it's about like what it means to be a man and um like being a man in this world and right. so on and so forth. And so she's she's mixing in this very like bro language here and there, um, which you may have mixed reactions to. Um, I look forward to hearing what you guys thought of it. And I think I'm going to ask you to start so that I don't like mix you up with my thoughts because clearly I have studied some Beowulf before. Yeah. Uh, and Alex I may, is and our I, designated mythology studies snack. Alex is wise yes. in this topic. Yes, which is why I was assigned Beowulf for this this temple. Yes. If you have not read Beowulf, dear listeners, it is an epic poem uh, about a man who uh, goes to help his friend king uh, kill a monster who has been killing all of his people. And then when the monster dies, the monster's mother comes and is really mad about it. And so they have to kill her too. Then some time passes and then they kill a dragon. That's it. Honestly, yeah. 
I, I have never read Beowulf before because <laughs> I am a horrible computer science gremlin. Um, right. I am Ill- illiterary. I am not illiterate, but I am very understudied when it comes to the classics. And I really loved this entire version. It made me like my mental image of Beowulf at this point was like Maui from Moana. There's a lot of that vibe to the way he approaches his whole like monster killing. I'm here. I'm here. Everybody applaud. And it was it was really interesting to see all of these little asides that the the poet would go off. The original poet would wander off and tell us a little bit about this random queen in a totally different country. Mm. Um, uh, and I was like, ah. This is like the gossip session in the bar when someone else interrupts you and like, yeah, but what about Aunt Mary? Like, what happened there? And someone's like, oh, well, let me tell you. And then you're like, no, get back onto the story. So that right, was right, really right. fun. Mm. Anyway, as I and was fact, saying, because I wasn't anyway, finished telling my was, story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not how it happened. Yeah. And I think what really worked for me about this was that because it is a very male tale right. and a very, here's someone swilling, you know, lifting their mead cup and telling you a story in a bar – or in a hall, instead of attempting to soften that in any way, uh, Headley just really leaned hard right. into that in a way that wasn't necessarily satire, but was definitely pointed commentary. Mm. And that word choice of using words like bro and swole yeah. and people calling each other buddy <laughs> in a way that's like the way that Australians call each other mate, yeah. mm-hmm. in that it can be friendly, but sometimes it's more definitely it's unfriendly. And and you're right that they have all these tangents and also within the poem itself, characters go on storytelling tangents right. and tell little stories in the halls that they are. So it sort of has these stories within stories in the poem. Yeah, It did kind of get really... me, like particularly reading the, the intro essay, like you say, Alex, which was really fascinating and certainly helped me contextualize it because, again, I don't have the background to do so myself. It really felt like Headley's um, intent was to give it the modern feeling that it would have had to people back then. Right. That it was a drinking mm. hall. It's, um, I don't know if you know the Carmina Barana, there's a drinking song that's like drunk monks yes. running around smashing beer glasses on everything. And it kind of felt like that. It's so much fun. Carmina Barana <laughs> yeah. is a very silly and, opera. And the combination of modern <laughs> language, like hashtag blessed, and a very archaic word formulation, some the of Kenings. the... Um, the Kennings and the, the co- combined words, it, it gave me a lot of the, the same sort of feelings of old meets new that Hamilton does mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, old things being put in new language. And because this is even more so, it's a tra- you know a direct translation of language into language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it was really effective, yeah. especially leaning up those sort of like brash masculinity things. My absolute favorite line in the entire one was, your sword's soft, son. <laughs> <laughs> Which is both beautifully alliterative and like definitely something yeah. that a drunk man would say to someone else yeah, that he was attempting to p- pull down a peg. Yeah. What did yeah. you think, Alex? So here's the thing, right? I think that the thing that Maria Devana Hadley, I'm going to have a nuanced answer, capital N nuanced, right? Which is always a difficult thing to approach. Um, I think that the thing that Maria Devana Hadley is doing is a very worthwhile and important thing. I think that it's useful and good to do it. Um, putting old stories in modern language makes it accessible to people who don't have, like, the kind of high literary background and classical mm-hmm. education that I do, right? Like Macy, you being a computer gremlin, like you just didn't focus on that. And that's like totally fine. And having it put in this language made it more accessible for you. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm not the target audience for this. <laughs> um, like I, I was, I was sort of like telling a, a friend about about this book um, earlier today because I was trying to like work out how I felt about it, uh, mm -hmm. and I was like, this book is not for me, and I mean that in both senses of the word. In that one. It just, I didn't quite react to it. Uh, and two, because I didn't react to it because I'm not the target audience. Like, mm -hmm. I am not the sort of person, like, with the background in education that I have, I do find the high epic poetic style to be something that I can understand and parse um, that other people might have more difficulty with. And so I found the mix to be a little bit jarring in places. Um, there were some lines that I thought that were quite, quite good um, and and very precisely translated both from Old English into Modern English and into like the modern style. Mm -hmm. um, but then there were also parts where I found like when she was writing in the Modern Register, um, she was writing in several different dialects, quote unquote, of the Modern Register, like with this very bro language but also some like internet meme language um mm -hmm. and i found that transition i was just like this isn't how i would have done it right <laughs> <laughs> uh which doesn't mean that it's it's bad at all i think again like i think that this is very very good um and uh, a very important and impactful work i think that i would recommend this to a lot of people it just wasn't for me specifically. Well, I think I think any good any translation <clears throat> of any kind is going to um, elicit feelings of that isn't quite how I would have done it, and that's part of the point. Right? Well, and I think specifically um, for experts, it's going to have a it's going to be mm, a, a different. different level. It's yes. like how I imprisoned you in my car that one time and shouted about right. the flutes in Tchaikovsky for in half Tchaikovsky. an hour and you couldn't escape. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, like, I'm sure that you would you experience. Um, orchestral music in a different way to, I, to, to how I do. And I yeah. am going to have different problems with interpretations of right. Mozart that might be a totally valid interpretation of Mozart, but that's incorrect. That's not how I would do it. And also the thing where you are always the one when we're having an episode about like a movie or something, you're always mm -hmm. like, did you notice like the theme that they use? Like the recurrence of this it's musical not. theme? And Freya and I are like, no. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I then, if I, we are talking about Macy's claimed expert corners, I'm going to claim a corner I don't think I've ever claimed before. Oh, I think. No, we don't talk about you. Don't talk about your work in this area there. No, much. we don't. Macy's uh, Macy's fun facts poet corner. Mm. I've actually now yes. sold more poems than I have short stories. Well, regale which us, is weird Macy to me. The poet. But like I, one of the things that I really appreciated in this work was the sense of rhythm. Mm. Um, uh, throughout mm. and there's this really driving kind of pulsating rhythm um, she has a really great sense for word emphasis and syllable emphasis and assonance um, that like the words just taste right they taste interesting there was this one place where there was an assonance uh, she uses the word danger and then that a sound she echoes it like three times in quick succession like bam 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 um, that I know is not the yeah. correct, precise form of the classical form. No, but I was going to say that is an artifact that she is repeating from the Old English version mm -hmm. of the poem, um, because that it's a kind of a mnemonic device. Because since mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. would have been to like performed to memorize it better, yeah. Um, so yes, it it has that. Yeah, but like being able to replicate that across a translation and still have it emphasize the like, and the the, the thing is like any other 
poetic or prose tool, you can overuse it. Mm. And the way that it gets used here is to emphasize and draw attention to particularly uh, to, to things she wants to be sharp and stick in your head, which mm. I guess is exactly what you're saying, mm. Alex, is, yes. as the mnemonic device. No, pay attention. This bit matters. Right. Can I can I read like two lines that use the same vowel sound five times? Sure. Like this is from my like one of my favorite bits, but it says ringless Grendel's fingers, kingless his country be it wizened vizier or beardless boy mm. and then it goes on but you've got the ringless and kingless but you've got it in fingers as well and then you've got wizened vizier which is like bang 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 mm. you know in even in two words and i kept slowing down and like saying parts mm-hmm. of it aloud because i really like assonance in internal rhyme and this is one of the things that like when i'm working with um particularly i do this in um salt washed which uncanny has out but you can use one word and the sound and the taste of one word to reference another word and bring it in even if it's not present mm. um and like i i use sediment and sentiment in that poem in two different places to imply each other mm. and that's the sort of thing that's getting done here that almost unconsciously references and pulls something in by as much the sound as by the meaning, which I just think is cool. Mm, mm, (laughs) mm. And before we move on from this one, I wanted to highlight briefly that this translation actually came about because of Maria Devina Headley's book, The Mere Mm, Wife, mm -hmm. which I've read and I think is excellent. And it's a much looser (laughs) adaptation of the Beowulf story, focusing on the character of Grendel's mother. And again, in the introduction, uh, she does talk quite a lot about how she wanted to explore this idea of the monstrous female and what kind of descriptors are used for Grendel's mother as the monster. And also the fact that she used female pronouns for the dragon, which is genderless in the original text. Um, And so even though she was doing all this bro stuff with the masculinity, she also wanted to add some nuance and some depth to these monstrous women within the text as well. There was a bit in the middle that very, very gruesomely described a monster that the men had ripped out of the sea and killed as stillbirthed mm-hmm. um, yeah so once choices... we hit the monsters that once we hit the monsters though the word choice becomes a lot more female coded in a very deliberate way and i would imagine alex that's something that's not fairly typical in in translations that's not how it would normally be done not that i can remember i haven't read very mm-hmm. many i think i've only read one maybe two i only skimmed those i didn't read the whole thing um <laughs> But yeah, mostly uh, Grendel's mother is often described at like, and the, uh, Maria Devana Hadley mentioned this in that the essay as well. How often she is depicted as like monstrous in the same way that Grendel is monstrous, uh, when actually like she might have just been like a like normal person of some sort. Her son got murdered. Who was mad that her son got murdered? Yeah, Yeah. Uh, and how it's it's very much like a issue of the translator putting their own mm-hmm. bias onto the onto the work mm-hmm. mm. all right well speaking of exploring the unexplored women within mm-hmm. a text i'm going to move us on to our second temple and this is nevo's the chosen yes, and the beautiful with its gorgeous cover which just came out oh. was it last yes week? last month last month i think uh, and this is nevo's retelling of the great gatsby which shifts the focus of the text to focus on the character of Jordan Baker, uh, who is a secondary character in The Great Gatsby, who is a golf professional and has a brief affair with Nick, the narrator of The Great Gatsby. And in this retelling, she is the central character. She is a Vietnamese adoptee and she has some magic. 
to do with paper cutting. So this is a fantasy retelling, although the fantastical elements are relatively subtle. They're not the whole point mm. of the book, I don't think. There is some things to do with making bargains with demons and magical substances and the paper cutting magic, which Jordan herself has. But most of the focus of the book is what does the Great Gatsby become when the person who is telling the story and centered in the story is somebody quite different to Nick and to Gatsby himself. So here is where I admit, again, as being a gremlin, I've never read The Great Gatsby. Neither have I. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so I read The Great in Gatsby charge. in high school, which is hilarious because I am the only non-American high school mm. person. Oh, oh no. I, well, Macy, Macy. Macy also sorry. was not I did American accidentally attend also. an American school for four years. Yeah. Okay. I was, an, I was an American so English major. I was an American English major How and I sort of reading this, Alex? I kind of made it a very deliberate attempt to get out <laughs> without having read The Great Gatsby. I had the opportunity to read The Great yeah. Gatsby at one point, but I chose The Lord of the Flies instead. Well, I can remember absolutely nothing about the context in which it was taught cool. in high school. Cool. I just know that I read it and cool. I didn't particularly enjoy it. Uh, and then I reread it just before I read The Chosen and the Beautiful. Mm. Again, did not particularly enjoy mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. Like nothing about that book is appealing to me mm. at all. Uh, but having read it and then rereading Chosen and, and then reading Chosen and the Beautiful mm -hmm. immediately on its heels was very illuminating to be able to see what exactly Vo is doing with the text. Mm. And it was a much closer adaptation than I had expected. Mm. Like there are quite a lot of scenes where uh, the action and even some of the dialogue is very close mm -hmm. uh, to what happens in the actual book, uh, Great Gatsby, like the opening scene of Chosen the Beautiful where uh, Jordan is talking about how she and Daisy had been flying around the house uh, and then they then they literally. sit down on the couch and, and the men come in. Yeah, literally. And that is entirely based on a, a line in The Great Gatsby where the first time Nick meets Jordan and Daisy together, he says like the impression that they gave, the two of them sitting on the couch, was that they had just settled down after floating around the rooms of the house. Huh. And so a lot of what's happening in this book is a literalization of the metaphors that the original text mm. has in a really clever way. Fascinating. Mm, but it, yeah, so it shifts the frame of the book and says, okay, all the shit with Nick by himself, who cares? Yeah, that's a mood. Jordan is the central character. It's her experience and her eyes that we're seeing everything through. Uh, and it also makes explicit the queer subtext of The Great Gatsby right. in saying that all four of the main characters are queer. Right. Mm. I thought that particularly the way in which Nick and Gatsby end up sort of fascinated with each other and intertwined was particularly interesting to see from Jordan's point of view, because I think it's about the emotions that men have, but might not necessarily be saying or like be admitting to, but like being watched from the outside. And she's seeing how much Nick is attached to Gatsby. Um, and I'm not as clear as to whether that was textual in The Great Gatsby or if it was just elided but my impression was that it was kind of spoken around. I mean the book The Great Gatsby, Nick's entire world is framed ah. around a, a, a fascination with Gatsby and what he represents mm -hmm. and although he becomes like sexually and emotionally involved with Jordan you never get the sense that his feelings for her ever reach anywhere near the peak of his fascination with Gatsby and that's what Nevo is playing with and turning into a, a different type of text mm. here. Yeah, let the men be queer, let the women be queer, let everyone be queer. But um, but yes, I think that Jordan has a certain sense of precarity 
in who she is that like everything about Gatsby and Daisy sort of scares her. Well, I mean, it's a book, it's a book very much about identity Mm. and Jordan has to balance all the different aspects of her identity and she has to come face to face with aspects of her Vietnamese identity when she meets some more Vietnamese Mm -hmm. people in the book who have the same paper cutting magic that she does and her identity as a woman, her identity in this society and a feeling of not quite fitting in which is something that Nick sort of has in Gatsby, mm-hmm. but it's much more, I feel it feels much more justified in this right. because there are many reasons why Jordan would feel like an outsider. Whereas Nick is just like, Oh, I don't really belong. And you just get this sense of this like random white man wandering through a party with a drink being like, Oh, I'm so misunderstood. <laughs> Whereas in this, um, one of the things for Jordan, of course, is that there is uh, laws going through Congress at that point that might literally make it illegal for her to be in the country. And one of the things that's running through the undercurrent of the book is what does she do if that happens? What is the impact on her as an immigrant, um, uh, especially because her parents are all dead? Who does she have in the world? She has an elderly aunt who's sickly. Uh, right. How does she make her way? Right. And she's she's hmm. kind of in this sort of in-betweeny position as well because she has privilege from being rich. And right. so is she, like, which box does she fit into? Like, does she still access that privilege from being rich or does she, is she put into the other box of, of being an immigrant? Um, mm-hmm. So even in that sense, she doesn't really know which way she's going to be expected to go. I mean, and one of the effects of the framing with focusing Jordan's story on these more serious considerations Mm -hmm. is that it really throws the original story of Gatsby, which is, oh no, he's been in love with this woman and she married someone else and drama, drama, drama. And it really is kind of framed as, well, there's all this like vaguely heterosexual nonsense happening over here and it's, you know, high interpersonal drama. Right. But in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter that much. Right. Right. But we have to feel it as though it matters because Gatsby plays everything larger than Mm. life. If he is going to be suffering, everybody suffers. (laughs) If he's going to glitter, everybody is going to glitter. And Jordan is sort of caught up in that Mm -hmm. while actually having much more serious things going on in her own life. Right. And Daisy too, to a sense. Like Daisy's um, over-exaggeration of the dramatic things to avoid the more unpleasant truths of her marriage and her situation to a man who cheats on her continually. And yep. hits her, I think. Well, I wasn't entirely clear if that was the case he or not. He at least, like, grabs her and bruises her a couple times. Right. And so to avoid dealing with that, she's having this love affair, this grand romance with Gatsby. Yeah, it's about who, who gets the size of what story. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, who gets, and who gets to act as though they are the main character. And, and genuineness and sincerity and which face you chose, choose to show to the world versus what you hide. And I did actually really love the positioning of Jordan almost as an observer as much as a character mm. in this. But I just love stories that are about experiencing life more than having protagonist agency. Right. So maybe that's just me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's one version of a retelling focusing on a female character Mm. is to say, what is she actually thinking Mm -hmm. about the story that is happening? But we need to be moving on with the episode. So tell me about another kind of retelling, if you would, Macy. I will. So the story starts in 2015. 
Oh, the, the whole story. Okay. No. Everybody's settling. Everybody, no. Okay. I will, I will cut it short. She, so uh, Macy is not going to break into Old English. I, I don't we think I could. Alex would have to coach me significantly and it would be... What no. we gardener in year Okay, let's not. Um, so, in 2015, baby Macy's first author-ish experience ever in her life was going to a workshop at Siren's... Um, conference for women in fantasy fiction uh, that was taught by Kate Elliott mm. and a few other authors as well. And one of the things that Kate Elliott spoke about in that workshop was a piece she was working on, which was a novel-length science fiction retelling of gender-flipped Alexander the Great. And all of us there went, ooh, ah, and then when can we read it? <laughs> so it's which is, 2020. Course, which is a question that yeah. every author loves every author to hear loves about to something hear. that is not finished so yet. So let's talk about Kate Elliott's Unconquerable mm. Son, um, which came out earlier this yes. year. Last year? Last year. What is linear time? I don't know yeah. what time is. I think it was this year. You can Google it. There we go. We'll find out. Dear listeners, your serpents are not good at linear Once time. Again, time doesn't Time is not real. July 7th, 2020. God. A year ago. It's a year ago wow. now. Cool. This is fine. It's a very good book. Um, this. So Kate Elliott's one of her great strengths is an ensemble cast. So this is not a straight retelling of Alexander the Great, the historical gay, Um is so much as it is an extremely loosely like inspired by tale. This is a story about the young heir to the throne of a galactic warlike nation um, trying to navigate like battles and espionage and people blowing up her most precious companions and betrayal and space pew pew mm -hmm. battles um, and sometimes like mind wiped semi-cyborg foreign agents that have been captured there's a lot of things there's that a lot of things that happen in this book it's a very it's a busy i'm book. glad that i'm not the only yeah. person that had that impression i was like this is just like there's a lot of things that happen in this book and i think there's only one male viewpoint uh, but there's a lot of different points of views across various different characters mm. the the uh the foreign cyborg dude assassin point of view yeah there we go assassin dude we love him um who's i'm if i'm reading it right is going to have a star-crossed love with the the companion who he can't look at her face because if he looks at her face he tries Persephone. to kill her i mean that is, such, is a great that's trope. such romance trope bullshit yeah. i love yeah. that like if you're gonna do a romance trope that's a good one i can't look on your face or i'll try and kill oh, you i will kill you <laughs> it's great but there's a moment early on where so the the princess son has a set of companions where each of the companions have been um accepted from one of the noble houses that sort of are under the queen in this civilization. And because it's a court intrigue, they're all, you know, betraying and hungry and they want to eat you. Um, so you take their companions as your hostage slash best friend. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sun walks back into her rooms where all of her companions are. And she's like, where's Hetty? And I'm like, hello, that's a name. Where's Hetty? And Sun goes on a quest. Where's Hetty? Where's Hetty? Where is she? There she is. And I'm like, oh, Hephaestion. Yes. <laughs> it's Alexander's best beloved yes. Hephaestion. 
Um, because Alexander the Great, of course, um, had a favorite boyfriend. He had a boyfriend. Just say yeah. it outright. He, yeah, had he had a boyfriend. boyfriend. Yeah. He had like he had a boyfriend, and when the boyfriend died, Alexander just basically <gasps> gave up. He's like, "Fuck this! Life's not Ooh, worth living." I wonder if she's. Fuck I it. wonder if Kate Elliott is going to bring up Bagoas in one of the later books. Oh, do you know Bagoas? I mean, Bagoas was Alexander the Great's pet Persian twink. <laughs> basically, <amazing>. yes. <laughs> And, a so- and if you believe uh, Mary Renault, a source of great tension in the Alexander Hephaestion yes. uh, relationship. Amazing. Amazing. I-, I love this. But um, Hetty, of course, is female in this version. Everybody is gender flipped. Um, Prince Philip, the king, of- the king of Macedonia, is also a warrior queen. Oh, I fucking love her. Fuckboy. She's terrible. She's the worst. <laughs> She's the worst. Every time she was on page, I was like, yes. She's yes, awful. Do something else vaguely abusive yeah. and horrid. Yes, we love it. Because you don't get to have horrid mothers who are horrid yeah. in that way. Yeah, and it, it made the um, the character of Sun's father really interesting as well. Right. Because his job was basically to be sort of like a decorative diplomat slash spy. He reminded me of the um, the phrase from Beowulf, the, the peace weaver. Yes, that was literally mm-hmm, his job. Mm-hmm. He was there to be to be married to create peace. Did you like the husband, Alex? Yes, he was being a soft I, boy. I, yes, I did like him. I did like him. I thought I thought he was interesting. I didn't really understand. Like, I didn't really necessarily trust what his motives were. I was like, "Are you That's a reliable narrator, or are you just like like <laughs> lying in a different way?" Well, I think the whole That's, point of it. Everyone, that, I think, yeah. in this book is lying. Yeah, is that he? His <laughs> role was like you know the um, empresses in the palace right. role. I've got nothing to do mm. except sit here, create an alliance, and I get a bit bored. And try to have more children. <laughs> have some more children. And make sure that my child intrigue. is the one who gets to be on the throne. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. Exactly that. And I think that was um, one of the, and- sorry, I was going to say that was one of the powers of this kind of um, changing the gender of all the characters is that you see people in roles that you would not normally see somebody of that gender mm-hmm. in that role. Um, and and yeah, the the queen basically falling in lust with an unsuitable younger woman. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, that's, that's a very mood. good. That's a mood. We've all been mm. there. Have we? <laughs> mm. <laughs> but what you were saying about the strength of an ensemble mm-hmm. and the fact that Sun is so closely entangled with all of her um, intimate friends yeah. really made me think about. There is a book called The Heroine's Journey oh. by Gail Carragher. This is a book structure manual which i think you probably quite like macy i haven't read it myself but i've read quite a lot around it and i know basically what it's about uh and it is an argument against conrad's hero's journey and it says here is an alternative way of thinking about structuring a book around one person's journey and this is the structure that a lot of romance novels and other other books that have been traditionally written by women or about women would follow and the focus is not on what the individual person has to question and leave their home and then come back to it. It's about their relationships. So the beats of the story are to do with building a found family, discovering strength through asking for help. Mm. Your dark moment comes when you try to rely on yourself alone and Mm. not rely on any of the people around you. And like all of the beats of the story are to do with relationship building. Mm. And if you think about the, the legend of Alexander the Great, it's very much of a, lone hero mm-hmm. slash genius who went and did all this stuff before his 30th birthday and, and then you're like him 
and his army. We're yes, him and his army. And this is, and obviously this is, you know, this series by Kate Elliott is about Sun and it's about this one person, but by presenting her as so deeply embedded in a friendship group and also as only one voice among multiple narrative voices in the book, um, it is really leaning into that idea that strength comes from relationships yeah. and strength mm. comes from the, the people around you. Like not only the like meta narratives of like the different points of view, but also there's she's one voice against the narrative of the media and the like yes. propaganda machine mm. as well. The American Idol competition following them around. Oh, <laughs> so good. Yeah. And that's a kind of fictional bard that we haven't seen very often. <laughs> With the yeah, yeah. The, the the conceit being, dear listeners, that in this universe, there's uh, this civilization has an annual like American Idol type thing. Except that like you can submit like actual things in your life to the competition. So they're submitting like their war campaign, yeah. and they're just having these little media bots following them around, like videotaping them getting into fist fights and doing espionage. And I'm like, that's not how espionage works, buddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But also, like, the, the other points of view characters don't particularly like Sun. Like, one of them is literally on the other side of the mm-hmm. war. Persephone right. is one of her chosen companions, but really doesn't like her. And like, right, it's, it's right. definitely the narrative is not entirely supportive of Sun's choices. So it's saying, here's the story of this extraordinary person, but we're going to enmesh her in a lot of context to make it more complicated. Right. You're going to understand that mm. she's also an asshole. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't think you can be a war leader without... Um, but I think that too often the narrative completely excuses or validates mm. that. Mm. And this one just isn't super interested in doing that. It's going to show you after she does something ruthless, it's going to flip to Hetty making a disapproving look and Sun being like, am I actually bad? Mm. Mm. <laughs> but I would like to maybe put forward a little bit of a taxonomy and it's a very loose one. But mm-hmm. given that all three of the temples we've talked about are coming at adaptation or translation from a a different way. So we've had a literal translation of the text. Mm -hmm. We've had a retelling of a classic novel, recentering a different character. And we've had a literal retelling of history Mm. where the genders are moved around. But also it's more just an inspiration than a... Yeah, it's using actual history as inspiration rather than rewriting a text per se, Mm -hmm. unless the text is the narrative of history. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, so what kind of motivations these retellings spring from? Like, what are people trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. And what are women trying to accomplish when they do these? And I am going to jump in at various points and just be militantly non-binary about it, because I have, this is also like, <laughs> yes. Alex has gender feelings now, corner. <laughs> Which we appreciate, because we have mostly been talking in terms of, these texts are all by cis women. Um, And we have been mostly talking in terms of, you know, gender flips, men, women, Mm. binary. So we would definitely like some outside perspectives. Non-binary snack discussion (laughs) as well. Do we want to quickly list out what the taxonomy was and then discuss them in more detail so that we can get them all in one place first? Uh, Sure. Sure. Yes. So what are the four, five? I had five. Okay, what are the but five? But you, you can argue with them or add more if you like. So one of them was literally recentering the women of the narrative, which is mm-hmm. what I think Chosen and the Beautiful is doing. Uh, secondary, but I think can be distinct, is a very fanfic urge of justice for, brackets, underappreciated female character, close brackets, mm-hmm. uh, which is another thing that Chosen and Beautiful is doing, but I think can be its own thing in a retelling, mm-hmm. especially if you're focusing on a less a secondary or marginal female character. Mm-hmm. And that's what the mere wife is, definitely. Sure. Uh, 
you know, in uh, caps, let's criticize the men, which is basically if you would like to make a point about what the male character or the male writer was doing, um, reclaiming a problematic fave in such a way that it can love you back. And that's to do with, I guess, women who have complicated relationships with certain texts and would like to play with them or rewrite them in a sense that you can feel that a text that doesn't necessarily see you or appreciate you, you can start to pull out the parts of it that you do enjoy and appreciate and rework it into something that you feel more comfortable Mm. with. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last one is also just simply shifting the frame or the meaning of a story if you do actually switch the character genders around, which is what Unconquerable Sun is doing, is making us look at the roles of people and what kind of people get to be um, particular roles and characters. Sorry, that was expressed very badly. I have run out of tea. Rule 63 oh, is the tea. is the fifth one, yes. just to put it in a short way. Yeah. Um, so now I will skewer some of these motivations because... Uh-huh. Um, Go for it. They make me mad. Be skewering. So recentering women is a perfectly fine motivation to do. I noticed, like, I hadn't realized this before, like, as... Until, like, literally today, as I was reading the dot points and trying to like come up with something to add but like I don't think that I'm actually excited about female retellings anymore because I have been disappointed so many times and I think that I was a little bit disappointed with both Chosen and the Beautiful and Unconquerable Sun. Beowulf gets a pass because it's Beowulf you know like it's an ancient epic poem we can't expect anything from it. (laughs) Actually let's start with reclaiming a problematic fave in such a way that it can love you back because I didn't really feel like any of these tentpoles loved me. Um, Chosen and the Mm. Beautiful I think got closest because Chosen and the Beautiful was showing that there was like a community of queer people and since it's like 1920s, like they don't necessarily have the language to express what non-binary is in a way that I would recognize today. Um, there mm-hmm. is a boy in a dress. There's some girls in tuxedos and we don't know whether they were non-binary or whether they were trans or whether they were um, just in drag or whether they were cis people who were just wearing fun clothes for fun. We don't know what they are. Um mm-hmm. I think I was most disappointed, and I'm going to be kind of blunt about this, I think I was most disappointed by Unconquerable Sun, because with a sci-fi setting, you can just have people be casually weird genders and have it not be a big deal, and I didn't see any Mm. of that in Unconquerable Sun, so that really made me feel kind of let down. That's kind of, and that kind of ties in with the the recentering women as well, because I feel like when we have these these, um, retellings so often non-binary people or trans people get forgotten or erased or ignored or just not included for whatever reason. And um, that's kind of upsetting, obviously. Um, And that ties in with the uh, Rule 63 one as well, because like Rule 63 has an implicit gender binary that it is enforcing, Mm. which is... um, like, I think the exact wording of Rule 63 is like, if there is a male character, you will be able to find a female version of that character, right? So like, you will be able to just find it. It's somewhere in yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, right. And no mention, of course, made of trans people or anyone else anywhere in the middle of the gender spectrum, uh, which can feel mm-hmm. very alienating. And it can feel you, d- you s- even even though someone has gone to the trouble of retelling the story in this way, you still don't exist. I think mm. that fandom is getting a bit better at this mm. these days. I'm seeing more retellings with trans characters yes. um, 
particularly uh, in Persona 5 fandom, there's a lot of, of retelling of those characters as trans. Yeah. I think one of the things I wanted to mention also were the existence of works like the Peter Darling, um, right? And that we chose this episode to feature a number of works by women retelling this. And I do sometimes... I don't know that I want a... Let, let me finish my thoughts okay. and then you can, can reply if that's okay. Um, I don't know that I want a cis woman retelling a book or a story from the point of view of a newly trans character. Um, but I also completely agree that, like you're saying with uh, Unspoken Son, there's no reason there shouldn't be cis and non-binary, uh, non-cis and non-binary characters in the background existing in that world. I think that's a distinction mm. for me. I think I'm kind of getting tired of the identity policing means that you aren't allowed to write something because um, like sure. a, a really good wording that I heard was that sometimes you don't realize that you're trans until you write about being trans. Sure, and sure, so, sure, sure. Mm. Right. And so saying like, I don't know that I would want a cis woman to write about this. Well, I mean, some people think that they're cis and they don't know until later, like after they've written a trans character that, that they're cis. And so I am much more open to people writing whatever the fuck they want, as long as they're ex exercising empathy and trying to like explore it in sensitive ways. That makes sense. I guess what I'm coming from is it, um, I would rather read those by trans and NB authors. I want to make sure there's space for them to, to tell those stories. But also, but also by saying, I'm just going to have to push back on you at this, but that means that you're saying that someone has to be out of the closet about being trans before they're allowed to write about being trans. And I don't think that that is a fair thing to do. I'm really not intending to say no, that. No, I know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like accusing you and I'm not mad at you. I'm just like pointing out what the implication of that stance is. Sure. I guess what I'm also trying to say is that it's, there are still reasons for there are still things for cis women writers to be pushing back against in by making works like these right? there, yes there certainly is a, a reason to have have works like these um like i don't think that these are worthless works to be doing quite the opposite but there are still i think that there's always going to be people who feel left out which sucks right yes i agree with mm. that i mm. think what i'm coming from is like um I don't think that it's right to ask every work to do everything. I agree with that as well. Yep. I think, and if, sorry, I was going to say, I think, yeah, when we're talking about the motivation for creating these work, I think we're saying what was the motivation of the author themselves. Right. And I think a lot of people write the thing that they would like to be seen in and seen by, and they're writing it for other people who would like something similar. But absolutely they are just from the the nature of writing something from a particular voice and by a particular soul author, you can't write something that everybody will see themselves in. And there will always be people who look at your work and say, okay, you know, that works really well for you and it works well for other people. I can't see myself in that. This isn't a story mm. for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the more voices we have coming out right, yes. from different perspectives, the more likelihood that somebody out there will find something they can see themselves yes. in. I mean, that's the key I right there. I think that's what I'm trying to yes. say is that, yeah, I want there to be more space for more gender varieties. Yes. 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 And the same text and the same story can be now retold 
from all right. these different perspectives that I heard listened to an interview with Nevo where she was saying, actually, I'm really excited for the first gay Gatsby. I'm really excited for the first trans Gatsby. Like these stories right. can be told mm-hmm. now. Um, and isn't it that you mentioned um, Peter Darling by Austin Chant? as like a, a trans take on Peter Pan. Um, mm. Aidan Thomas also did a trans, who's, who's a trans writer, has also brought out a, a Peter Pan, Wendy Darling retelling called mm-hmm. Lost in the Neverwoods. Huh. And there's something about that particular text that really lends itself to sort of examinations um, of coming at this from weird gender yeah. issues because it's so, so gender essentialist as a text yeah. like it's making really clear things about it. this is what little boys do this is what little girls do this is what boys grow up to be this is what girls grow up to be and there's something about such a blatant essentialist mind you want to dig your fingers into it and mess with it and you shake you want to get your fingers yeah. in and, and and mess things yeah. up yeah, yeah yeah that makes a great sense because when i saw alex's uh, dot point about reimagining this into fanfic it made me think immediately of Narnia and E.J. Lomax's fanfic reinterpretations of the Susan problem, because Narnia is yet another hugely, hugely like narrow-minded in gender terms mm-hmm. canon, mm. right? And it's like, you, male author, do not deserve this character. You don't know what you're talking about. There's more in this world. For the most part, yeah. I think that um, the one that's immediately springing to mind is the horse and his boy, because... Uh, mm-hmm the little girl does get to go like on an adventure and be kind of like catty and like sharp and mean. Um, <laughs> we love that. We, she, that was my favorite book and she was one of my favorite characters. I loved her. Yeah. It was my favorite book as well. And I think it was because, because it wasn't in Narnia per yes. se. It was kind of like Narnia adjacent. It, it was like, well, the girls are allowed to have adventures over And it here. wasn't about the really annoying British children. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Yes, but I think that, like, but the point that I was making with the stop point about fanfic, uh, like, I think that a lot, we're going to be seeing more retellings of Gatsby, as you said, because now that it has, um, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. entered the, what is it, the Public common- domain? Public domain, that's it. I was like, the common law? Mm. No, no, that's that common law marriage. <laughs> it's married to all of us now. <laughs> We've all married to Gatsby. <laughs> no. <laughs> now that it's entered the public domain, now it's free for more people to play with in yeah. the ways that fanfic lets you lets you play with work. And, and we're seeing like so much of the sort of quote unquote technological developments that we're seeing in like how to write about uh gender Mm. squishy Mm -hmm. stuff right are happening in fanfic spaces um like 10 years ago the prevailing term was uh gender swap which is implicitly Mm. a binary enforcing word because when you swap something attaching the genitals to gender right right uh and so now you see more commonly gender bend which is when they mean gender not sex or cis swap right. where it, always it's a girl just or whatever always like a girl right uh, AFAB, always afab afab to amab and Kate yeah, stasis yeah. which is more accurate uh and more specific uh and helps you find the stories that you want to find because if you want to read a story about someone who is a like taking this character and making a canonically uh, assigned male at birth character, cis. Uh, If you take him and you make him a trans woman, that is a much different story from taking him and making him assigned female at birth, cis. Right. But do we want to make a quick run through Macy's female gaze section? 
I do want to point out that this is spelled the female G A open brackets Y S slash Z E close brackets. <laughs> I just wanted to make the pun really. It was obvious. a good pun. It's a very nice pun, but it's not super. It's radio not radio friendly. friendly. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I am the most radio friendly. I make exquisite, exquisite radio at all times, and lie. I never shake dice at the microphone. Um, Your audio editor <laughs> loves you so much. <laughs> yes, they do. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the female gaze, um, literally in the eyes sense, um, because I think one of the interesting things that particularly Chosen and the Beautiful, but also the Beowulf retelling does, mm. is it shifts the meaning of a story just by the act of them being looked at coming from a woman instead of from a man. Um, and that's kind of alchemy. That's witchcraft. Mm. And mm. I thought particularly the... relatively minor side characters of Beowulf um, it seemed like they were given more agency and more of a role than at least the foreword essay implied was usually the case the thing that stuck out to me was like sometimes a woman would be mentioned and there would be a little line like oh remember her and just by saying oh remember her it's like adding more weight to that name Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. even if she only gets this one offhanded um, mention it's sort of implying with the use of negative space, like a whole bunch of other stuff and like impact and and weight and meaning that she had. Mm. And just what a narrator chooses to mention about a character, like how are they described when they appear? What kind of words are used? What do we linger on? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the camera eye of the narrator, what does it find important or noteworthy about this female character or the male character even does really shift. Right. Uh, when you're thinking about who is holding that camera, yeah. literary-wise. And Tumblr and the infinitely many gifts last week of kneeling Loki. Apparently Loki is kneeling on a television show. I haven't been on anything <laughs> lately. <laughs> Apparently that's the thing but that's happening. If you, I think it's a very appealing gift set if you're into kneeling men. I mean... So, you know. <laughs> I sometimes write about them. <laughs> But even like looking at how Charlize Theron's films um, yeah. put the camera on a woman doing things and let her get sweaty and put her strength behind things and grimace. Yeah. And be grubby. You know? yes. Yeah. And grubby, be grubby and, and, yes. and not unpretty. Yeah. Fury Road and just like the grime. The grime. Or just, oh. or like in Atomic Blonde when she is like in that very, very long fight scene and she's getting like bloody and like gross and sweaty. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. like slowing mm. down but still punching. Yeah, and just absolutely mm. and it's brutal. Making a very, yeah. a very clear statement that I'm not here for you to gaze at. Right. Like, yeah, this is my story. You're just following me. Except along. looking respectfully. Looking respectfully. <laughs> we are looking respectfully. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. I grew up reading books that weren't about me. You know, Eddings and Tolkien and even Pratchett much of the time had a vision of what a hero looked like. He looked like King Arthur, Luke Skywalker, Belgarian, and, you know, we still have lots of Jon Snows and Geralt of Rivia's today, but... Every time a woman or a queer author or an author of colour gets to grab hold of one of these heroes and say, no, not like that, like this, 
every time they get to twist and reinterpret a character the way our tentpoles have, that makes my hungry little heart go pitter-patter. Just a bit. But we have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes. On the next episode, two weeks hence on August 11th, we'll be discussing musicals! So if you want to prepare in advance, one of the tentpoles for that episode is the musical Wicked. So if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr, and if you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. And by the way, I think you have good taste in rocks. No, not rock, just rocks, you know, pebbles. You pick neat ones. <laughs>